Today we're beginning a new series called Unbreakable. And over the course of the next three weeks, we are going to look at three different passages from the letter of 2 Corinthians. And in them, in some way, we're going to highlight the reality that what God offers us is unbreakable and challenge the way that we live our lives because of that. Today, what we're going to do as we kick things off is look at the unbreakable faith that is available to us. And then we're going to spend most of our time together talking about what that means for us as people who live in a fragile world. And I say that because if our faith is unbreakable, then what it should do is it should give us a unique perspective on life. Not only that, it should give us a unique way of handling uh, the things that we experience in this life. Because the truth is, the idea of something being unbreakable, the idea of something that is permanent, that lasts, it doesn't really resonate in our world. In our world, things fall apart. Uh, this is the reality of life, from the things that we buy in the store, to the homes that we live in, to the very lives that we lead. Uh, things age, things decay. Uh, this is just the reality of life. There's a quote that I found from The Guardian. It's about entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. I'm just going to read it for you because it gets my point across well. It says, this law is about inefficiency, degeneration, and decay. It tells us all we do is inherently wasteful and that there are irreversible processes in this universe. It gives us an arrow for time and tells us that our universe has an inescapably bleak, desolate fate. Now, on the one hand, uh, this is just the reality of life, and uh, these words actually line up with what we see in Scripture, at least in regards to this world that we currently live in. It highlights the reality that there is an expiration date on things. Hebrews 1 verses 10 and 12 says this, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. So, if this is the reality for our fragile world, if this is what we see when we look at both science and scripture, then we have to ask, or at least what it makes me honestly feel like I have to ask, is how, in the midst of this, can we have any hope? This is the question that jumps into my mind, and this is what we're going to spend most of our time looking at today, because I believe hope is what our unbreakable faith gives us. And hope is the thing that allows us to handle life in a fragile world, a world that, that so often breaks. Uh, before I say anything else, I think we better just pause and read our text. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12. It's a passage that many, if not uh, all of you, will recognize the moment I begin reading it. It's a very famous passage, and because of that, uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Paul writes these words, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. 
We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now there are three main parts to this text, and I want to do my best to give each of them the attention that they deserve. Because in them, we see the source of our hope, the strength of our hope, and the purpose of our hope. And this is crucial because hope is a necessary part of life. You cannot live a meaningful life without hope. The uh, Russian author Dostoevsky, whose uh, most famous work is probably the book Crime and Punishment, said... To live without hope is to cease to live. You know, I say that we can't have a meaningful life without hope. He says that we can't even just live life. And so we ask this question, where does our hope come from? And it's not a new question, but I do think it's one that we ought to ask ourselves uh, from time to time to make sure that the source of our hope, it hasn't slipped out of alignment from where it ought to be because that's something that can happen if we're not careful. And when it comes to the source of our hope and and where we put our hope, I want us to think in simplest terms today. So I want you to think about it like this. You can put your hope in something that lasts or something that does not. And that is just me trying to be a realist today. Remember what I just read about thermodynamics and entropy and the inescapably bleak and desolate future that awaits this world By extension, it awaits those who live on it. Hope that is born out of anything in this world, in this life, will not last. We can put our hope in things like our own abilities, whether that's athletic abilities or or talents or different skills that we have uh, enhanced over the years. But the truth is, eventually, our bodies will break down. We won't be fast enough. We won't be smooth enough. We won't be strong enough for whatever it is. And after a certain amount of time, this thing that we've built our life around, that we've put our hope in, it's taken from us. And it's devastating when that happens. You can go another route. You can put your hope Uh, in something like your family, which of course, you know, our families are not a bad thing. But no matter how great your spouse is, no matter how wonderful your children are, they were never meant to be the source of unbreakable hope in your life. And because of that, the weight that you put on them and the pressure uh, that's put on them, it's just too much. And the truth is, we know this, they will let you down. You will let them down. And all of a sudden, again, this thing that we've built our life around, it's not able to give us what we need. And it doesn't matter um, what it is we put our hope in, how noble, how worthy, how special, how unique a cause is. Because if it's something in this world, there will come a time, according to the laws of nature, that it will fall apart. It will be wiped away as if it never was. And the truth is, that's not something that we like to think about. I understand that. But at the same time, it's not anything that we can escape. So, 
then we take a step back and we ask ourselves this question. What does it look like to put our hope in something that lasts? Not just from one generation to the next, but into eternity. Well, this is what we see in verse 7 of our text. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And this is point number one. This is the source of our hope. Now, the first thing that we have to recognize, as obvious as it may seem, it is the most important thing. And it's this truth that this lasting hope, it comes from somewhere else. It does not come from us. And the Bible describes humans in a variety of different ways. Some of them are more endearing than others. If you've grown up in the church, then the one that you are probably the most familiar with is the image of sheep. It's not a flattering picture, especially the more you learn about the nature of sheep, the helplessness of sheep, for example. But what we see in verse 7 is that Paul makes this claim that we are like jars of clay. Some translations might say clay pots or even something like earthenware vessels. Uh, It's all the same thing. And what comes to my mind when I hear this term, uh, jars of clay, it's not a perfect modern equivalent by any means, but what comes to my mind is the image of a Tupperware container. But here's the deal. When I say this, I'm not talking about, you know, something that's glass, something that you can put in the oven, something that's, you know, really fancy. I'm not even talking about, you know, thick plastic containers that are BPA-free and have matching lids. I'm talking about the Tupperware containers that I remember using as a kid. Uh, They were all round, they all matched, and they all said Cool Whip on the side of them. Uh, Maybe you have something similar, uh, if not that, that you can think about or remember. Uh, But they were great, you know, because you could stuff just about any amount of leftovers in them, and you could keep them in the refrigerator, and it didn't matter if they cracked or got warped or, or if they got stained, you know, if you put something like spaghetti sauce in them, for example. You just threw them away, and it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it's not the perfect comparison, like I said, but I think you get the point. I say that because clay pottery was the most common material in the first century for things like cookware, dishes, wash basin, basins, uh, storage, waste removal, even. And this is what Paul compares believers to. And, you know, while we could try to be very clever in the different ways uh, of thinking that, you know, how this applies to us and and what this means for us as human beings, I think that there are two big ones that we need to really acknowledge before we move on. And the first one is the simple fact that these jars of clay, they were very common and they were very ordinary. This was the container for everyday people, and it was anything but fancy. The second thing that sticks out to me is the fact that these jars of clay, they were very breakable. And I don't think that anyone would argue with me today about the fragile nature of life. These clay pots used in Paul's day, they were everywhere, but they were not built to last. They broke easily and they broke often. But really what we have in this verse is a picture of hope because Paul begins not by talking about the jars of clay, but he begins by talking about what is inside of them. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. 
When Paul writes this, he's not just talking about himself or his traveling companions. He's not even just talking about the believers at the church in Corinth, even though he's writing this letter to them. He is talking about all believers everywhere and over the course of time. And this treasure that he is talking about is the gospel, the good news of salvation, the good news of hope. And it's not just the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope for the future, but it's also this all-surpassing power that gives us hope here and now. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, God takes his greatest unbreakable treasure and places it inside of those who are common, ordinary, and fragile. Paul writes this as a way to give us hope. I really believe that. But he also does it as a way to defend the work of God in his own life and in his ministry. Something that really stands out if you study the book of or the letter, I guess, of 2 Corinthians, is that Paul is defending himself a lot in this letter. He's defending his ministry. He's defending his apostleship. He's defending everything that he does. And the reason that he has to do this is because he is undergoing personal attacks at this time in his life. Uh, there are teachers, there are false teachers who are trying to destroy Paul's reputation. Now, the church in Corinth, it was planted by Paul, like so many churches were back then, uh, but it was a church that had a lot of problems. And one of the reasons that it had problems is there were people in the church who didn't necessarily oppose Paul's message, or at least that's not what it seems like, but they did oppose Paul. And we don't have time to get into why this is, or you know, maybe I should say the theories about why this is, but we have to acknowledge that there were other people there who were all too happy to take advantage of this opposition. And there can be a temptation for us, especially if we grew up in the church, to think about Paul as this larger-than-life, almost uh, mythical figure. He has this wonderful backstory where he is this hard-nosed religious leader who undergoes this just incredible life-changing conversion experience. He goes on uh, missionary journeys. He plants church after church, and he's used by God to write most of the New Testament. But I think that many of us, we might have been underwhelmed had we heard the stories about Paul and his exploits and then found ourselves face to face with him as he walked this earth. And I'm not trying to be negative when I say that, I'm just trying to paint a clear picture. Because when you look closer at, at who Paul was and what we see in scripture, we learn that he was an unimpressive man by many worldly standards. He was poor, he was a tent maker. He had some kind of physical impediment or disability that people speculate about, you know, what this might have been. And he says by his own admission that he was not a polished, maybe even not a good public speaker. And so he was called out. He was called out because of these things and people pointed to them as a way to try and belittle Paul, not only as a person, but also as a pastor. And while others tried to point out all of these shortcomings in Paul's life as proof that he should not be listened to and you should not follow him and you should not take him seriously, he says, 
at other places, but I believe he says it in this verse here as well, that all of these shortcomings, they actually point to the greater power of God. What he's saying here is that he is just a jar of clay, ordinary, frail, disposable, and it's only because of the power of God that he has been able to do the things that he has done. And the truth is, this should fill us all with lasting hope because what it tells us is that we don't have to be special, we don't have to be talented, we don't have to be um, gifted in any you know just incredibly unique way or anything like that for us to, one, have this same unbreakable treasure, this same hope inside of our lives, but at the same time, to have the same power at work in our lives. And this is something that God has a habit of doing. Uh, He has a habit of using people and using plans that don't make sense, not even a little bit, to display his power. I don't remember how old I was when I began to go back and reread a lot of the Old Testament stories that I grew up on, some of my uh, favorite stories. Uh, And I, I realized very quickly, very easily, how often the Israelites just had terrible plans, terrible plans. And I try to think about what it would have been like to, to look at, at their life as a nation, their journeys, their exploits, just from the standpoint of an observer, you know, not someone who understands the power of God at work in their lives. You know, but what would, what would it have been like to see Joshua march around the city of Jericho day after day after day, expecting something to happen? You know, what would it have been like to see Gideon raise this army to fight for freedom and then watch as he takes it from this um, formidable force of 32,000 men down to only 300? What would it have been like to watch David step out on the field versus Goliath with no armor, no shield, and no sword? We read these stories and we love them because we know how they end and we understand the God that is at work in the midst of them. But at the same time, you read them and only a fool would think, you know, wow, what a great strategy. Why don't we do the things the Israelites did? Because on paper, they're terrible plans. They're terrible plans. But because they're terrible plans, it makes clear that whatever is accomplished is accomplished by the power of God, not by the cleverness or the skill of the people in the middle of this. And the truth is, this is a common thread in the Bible from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. And it's something I've heard a variety of different ways, but the way that sticks out to me the most and the way that I like the most is it's this idea of the upside-down way of God. The upside-down way of God, where he uses the most unlikely of people to bring about the greatest changes and differences in our world. Paul continues in the next section of our text, you know, to write about how this hope that gives us value, that gives us worth like nothing else can, it also provides us strength like nothing else can. That's that's number two, the strength of our hope the strength of our hope. I'm just going to read verses 8 through 10 again one more time to you because I want to make sure that we can try and appreciate everything that's going on here. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, 
perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, at least to me, this whole section seems very odd, at least in the beginning. And uh, I say that not because I doubt any of it, but because just one verse ago, Paul is describing us as jars of clay. He's describing us as these common, brittle, breakable things that, that crack or shatter, not only when you drop them, but just if you bump them into something too hard. And now he's describing something with resilience, durability under pressure, and an overall toughness that just doesn't line up with the image that we just saw. But the truth is, just like our hope does not come from our own abilities, neither does our strength. And because of that, he is saying that we not only have the power to endure difficult times, we also have the power to overcome them. In his book, Where is God When It Hurts? Author Philip Yancey shares a quote from a Swiss physician and counselor named Paul Turner. He writes, What counts is the way a person reacts in the face of suffering. That is the real test of a person. What is our personal attitude to life and its changes and chances? I thought about that when I was thinking about the way to describe or go into detail about uh, what Paul is saying here and what we see mostly in verses 8 and 9 um, because what we see, at least at least what I think we see, is kind of this progression of things just going from bad to worse. But at the same time, we see this steadfast resilience and strength uh, in the face of all of these difficulties. I'm going to try and show you what I mean. What is translated hard-pressed in our Bibles, for example, it has to do with being put under pressure. Uh, It's like uh, the pressing of grapes for wine, and yet he says that it does not have to crush us. From there, Paul says, you know, we are perplexed, which in the uh, original language has to do with being at a loss. It's the idea of a person being at their wit's end. They can't see any other way out. Uh, But we don't have to despair because what he's telling us is there is still a way out whether we see it or not. Persecuted is the next word he uses. And in the Greek, it refers to being hunted or pursued. And it's interesting here because Paul, uh, even though he's only done it a couple of times, he, he changes things up a bit. And this is what I mean. You know, he talks about having this great weight of pressure on us, but it not crushing us. He talks about us being at our wit's end. Uh, but even if we don't see it, he says there is a way out. And now he talks about us being hunted and pursued, but he doesn't say we will escape, which is what I think we would expect him to say because of what he has said in the other two illustrations. Rather, what he does tell us is that we will not be abandoned. He's saying that God is with us. And it's important for us to realize this, not just because of the comfort that it provides, but we have to remember that Jesus on the cross, he knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to have his friends, his followers, his father leave him. And what he is saying is, he's not going to let that happen to us. Often, one of the greatest enemies to hope is just feeling alone. 
people feel helpless. They feel hopeless whenever they are isolated. I mean, we know it's true that most of the time, what matters are the people that we're around much more than the circumstances of life. You know, on the outside, we can be experiencing something wonderful. We can have great professional success in a variety of different ways. But if our relationships are all falling apart and we feel isolated and alone or even abandoned, no amount of comfort, money, wealth, success can make a meaningful difference in our lives. You know, we might be able to dull the emptiness for a little while. We might be able to dull uh, the uh, hopelessness that we feel for a little while. But the truth is just being lonely can be a dangerous thing for people. And on the other hand, if our circumstances, our, our circumstances rather, our situation, they appear dire, they're difficult, you know, we're going through something that we would not wish upon anyone, we know that simply if we don't have to go through the situation, whatever it is, if we don't have to go through it alone, it can make a world of difference. And what Paul is telling us here is that no matter what we're going through, we're never going to be alone. Finally, Paul says that we can be struck down but not destroyed. And a good way for us to appreciate this, honestly, is just to think about a, a boxer or a fighter, uh, someone who's in a ring or a competition and they get knocked down, but they're not knocked out. They're knocked down, but they can still get up. They can keep going. And uh, I think that we all know that life certainly has the power to knock us down at different times. What stands out to me about this section the most is the reality that Paul is not sugarcoating what life is like. Life is hard, life is difficult, and life is, is dangerous and confusing at times. I have seen the movie The Princess Bride more times than I can count, and I don't really think that's an exaggeration. I, I grew up watching it over and over again with my grandmother. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I am constantly pestering my wife and asking her how old our kids have to be before they can watch it so that we can have a family movie night together and I can essentially ruin the whole thing by quoting all of the lines in the movie before they even happen. Well, without spoiling a movie that is over 30 years old, so if you haven't seen it, I don't feel too much, too bad about this, but there's a great line when Wesley, the main character, he says to Princess Buttercup, he says, life is pain and anyone who says differently is selling something. What Paul is telling us because despite of what some people say, Christianity is not selling something. What he's telling us in this passage has nothing to do with the power to escape the painful realities of life in a fragile world, which honestly is what so many people want. But it has everything to do with the power to withstand them, endure them, to have hope in the midst of them, God never promises us immunity from the hurts of life, the hardships of life. And this is something that many people, and I'll be real honest with you today, I'll put myself at the top of this list. Many people struggle with this at times. But I'll just say it like this and then I'll move on. We don't have to be left hopeless by them. Because our hope does not come from this present life. The final thing I want to talk about today that we see in our passage 
Number three, it's the purpose of our hope. The purpose of our hope. This is what we see in verses 11 and 12. He says, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. What do we do with a hope like this? What do we do? Simply put, we share it. We share it. That is our great goal and purpose, to share this hope that we have with those around us. We are these earthenware vessels, these these jars of clay. And we talked about how, you know, we are common and we're ordinary. And we talked about how we're we're frail and we're brittle, uh, we're breakable in this world. But there's another thing that Paul, I believe, points to with this illustration that we need to appreciate. And it's this reality that we were meant to be used and not admired. These jars of clay in Paul's life, they served a purpose. They were used. And the truth is you and I, we serve a purpose and we need to be used as well. One of my favorite images uh, used in the Bible over and over again is the simple contrast between light and darkness. It's, it's, It's powerful in its simplicity. And it's something that we need to remember when thinking about this hope that we have and the hope that we're supposed to share with people around us. And I was thinking about a way to communicate this last truth, these last couple of verses, especially in relation to what Paul writes in verse 12 when he says, So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And the image that came to my mind was the image of a candle. And I'm not saying that this is the perfect image or anything like that. But it makes me think of a candle because in order for a candle to work properly, in order for a candle to give light to the world around it so that people can see and so that they can live well, it has to die. And I realize that uh, that is melodramatic today, but it's the truth. Because the moment we light a candle, it's life. Everything that makes it a candle, it begins to burn and melt away. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that if we don't light it, it has no real value, nothing meaningful. You know, we we can have candles that look nice, that that are different colors, that even smell nice. They, They accent things in our house. But if we never light them, you don't make a real difference. Think about when the power goes out. I, I have so many memories uh, of the storms that we would get in Oklahoma. I know that everyone gets these kinds of storms and they would knock the power out in our small house. And, and it's amazing to me as I remember the difference one candle would make in the middle of that darkness, especially to a child who was scared of the storms and scared of the darkness. Just one candle, just one candle can provide so much comfort and and peace. And it's just because we're not in the dark any longer. You know, does it cost something? Yes. But the value that it gives, the hope that it provides, 
is worth the cost. You see, we have this opportunity not just to be a part of the kingdom of God, as wonderful as that is. We have this opportunity to be part of the upside-down way of God. And this is because even though we are regular, we are ordinary, the hope that we have is not born of this world. And the power that we have inside of us is not born of this world. And it gives us the motive and the means to make a difference in the lives of others. Because this burden of trying to be the source of our own hope, to be the source of our own sense of meaning and worth, it's lifted off of us. And this means that we're free to live life in an utterly unique in different way, because our hope doesn't come from the fragile world around us, but neither is it something that we have to suffer under, because it's not based on it's not based on our own abilities, our own performance. It comes from this unbreakable faith in a God who gave his life, not just so that we could have eternity in heaven with him but so that we could have hope now and so that we could make a difference now. I want you to listen to what Paul writes at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not something that we read uh, earlier, but it is how I want to close. It's chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Father God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us today to, at the same time, embrace this reality that we are jars of clay that we are fragile creatures in a fragile world, but to also, with just as much passion, embrace this treasure that you have placed inside of us, this treasure that you have offered to all of us that gives us hope and strength and purpose. Please lift the burden from our shoulders of trying to be the source of our own hope and help us to rest in you knowing that our hope comes from you our meaning, our identity, our value comes from you. It's not something that we have to earn or come up with. It's something that we can embrace. And it gives us an opportunity to live like no one else. Utterly, completely unique and different. And when we do that, we can shine for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.